Well, it's good to be back with you. I specially ordered that reins last week to remind you that we're talking about the book of Genesis. We will be talking about some of the literary gems from the Noah story, but not this week. And so it, it is a joy to be back with you and to be so close and, and have the opportunity to share with you and to hopefully have us talk and learn together about some of the things that we're uh, going to be seeing from the book of Genesis. Of course, the book of Genesis is a part of God's word, but I want us in this series to enjoy it from another facet, and that is as great literature. Oftentimes, we just kind of read the Bible as straight content. This is God's giving us information. But one of the things that I have been noticing over and over and over again is the way in which God has crafted this word is masterful. And so how many of you, uh, maybe some of you, are English literature, have lit- English literature backgrounds? Any of you? A couple of you? Any of you English lit teachers? You know, honest, for a lot of guys, when I was in English lit classes in high school, had to read Red Badge of Courage and all these other books, and you kind of get kind of, ah, what's the symbolism? Why is that the red badge? And oh, how is red used as a symbol throughout the book? And most, most guys go, ah, I just want to re- read the story about civil war and battles and, and guns going off. But one of the things you do learn to appreciate is the way in which authors take their time to craft the content in such a way to help us and to enhance what they're saying. And so we're going to be doing some of that just primarily in the book of Genesis. So I have two goals for this series. One is what I call the wow factor. I want you to go, let me see here. I want you to be able to open up your Bible and say, wow, it is said in that way? It uses that technique? And so we're going to experiment. We're going to have you do some, even some homework. This is a class. So you're going to have an assignment for this coming week. And so I want you to learn to appreciate just one angle, one facet of God's word, and that's the way in which it is told. But then also, too, I can't help but be a teacher. And I want to help you to read your Bible better. And so by showing you some of these techniques, hopefully that will rub off on you as you read other books of the Bible. So that you will have tips and techniques to help you to enhance your reading of the text of God's Word. So it's going to be a skill-building course. So that's why I enjoy having Log On for Life as a way for us to get together and to just discuss and talk I always like questions. There's two out there that are roving around with microphones. So wave your hand if you have any questions whatsoever during the presentation or after the presentation, and be glad to entertain those questions. Like I said, we're going to discuss a number of different literary techniques. The one we'll talk about today is what we call characterization, and I'll model what that is in just a little bit. But one of the things we'll be seeing in the coming weeks are things like word puns and word plays how the author, both human and divine, are able to inject into the story things that just kind of make it pop, things that just kind of enhance the way in which the story is told. And we'll be modeling some of those things. We'll also talk about even how you can order the material of an account, of a story, of a passage, and how that helps us to understand what the author is wanting us to see. 
part of this really is a little bit behind the scenes as what authors do to assist readers to get what they're trying to communicate. Certainly God has a vested interest to make sure we understand his word. And so there's different ways that authors use to make sure that we as readers, as listeners of this text, are able to see what they're trying to get at. And we'll have fun, too, with just even little, little tidbits along the way. They're not the main parts of these stories, but the way in which they're told, it just kind of really enhances the aesthetic beauty of what's going on. So, for instance, uh, with Jacob, he goes off and he has this Jacob's ladder scene where he sees the angels ascending and descending, and he's at Bethel. And it's at night. He's dreaming because he's sleeping with a pillow as a rock. And it's nighttime. He leaves and he's 20 years in Pandamaram. When he comes back and he has this mysterious wrestling match, the end of the story is the sun rose. It's a literary technique. Just like we say, there's a new day dawning. Well, it's just like what's going on in Jacob's heart and life is what's actually happening in the scene. Did the sun rise and the sun set for those 20 years while Jacob was away? It sure did. But the author only brings that in at this point to enhance the story that Jacob is a transformed man. There's a new, literally a new day dawning in his life. And so the idea of the sun being mentioned in the sunrise is one way to just kind of enhance that. So it's a, it's a small little thing. We'll talk about props, and I'll wait for a later lesson to talk about that. But the, this morning, I want to talk about the technique of characterization from Genesis 1 to 2. But before we get there, we want to introduce. Now, there's some handouts there. So if you want a little overview of uh, what I'm going to be talking about, those handouts are there for you, so you can take a look at those uh, later. But there's this line that we often use, you never get a second chance to leave a first impression. Right? You've heard that before? You never get a second chance to leave a first impression. That is, how we appear before somebody for the first time is often very, very critical as to how that person is going to be viewed the rest of the way. Now, my daughter gave birth to our granddaughter just last July. But before she had to give birth to a baby, she had to get married. And I remember going to college where she was attending, and her potential suitor was in among the group of us going out to eat at a local restaurant there. And so, of course, as a potential father-in-law, I am analyzing all of the guys around the table. And the one guy that there was showing some interest had a baseball cap on backwards. And I'm thinking, hmm. So my first impression wasn't all that good because I don't wear baseball caps. I think somebody wears it around backwards is maybe, you know, uh, not the right type of person for my daughter. And so I had to overcome that first impression. And thankfully, he has shown great love and affection and devotion to my daughter, and he's a fine son-in-law. But I had to overcome that first impression. And we all have experiences like that where our first impressions sometimes are very, very positive, but oftentimes they can be very, very negative. 
Psychologists tell us what happens with these first impressions is what they do is they create what's called a memory burn. Kind of like etched in our minds, those images. So I can still picture my son-in-law with his baseball cap on backwards. That's a memory burn. And this is the challenge. Many of us grew up, including myself, we had black and white TVs, and then we went to color TVs. But even before uh, any of that, we, after that, we had remotes. Remember the remotes when they first came out? But in order for you to change the channel, you had to physically get off of your seat, right? You had to get off your seat, turn the channel, and it was only in Chicago, 2, 5, 7, 9, 11, and 32. That was it. So you had six channels. Now, I imagine most of you have televisions at home and you have a remote. How quickly now can you scan through the channels? Especially for the men, the men among us. They're, again, who has the remote has the power. But I'm sure you ladies are amazed at how quickly us men can make judgments as to how much how little we see before we move on to the next channel. Websites are the same way. Web designers are told you have three seconds to capture that person's attention. If you don't grab that person within three seconds, they're clicked to another site. So first impressions are very, uh, very, very important. There is what is called the halo effect. You want to create such an effect that they, even if the a good impression so that even some of the more negative elements are overshadowed by the positive ones. So these are all techniques that happens with marketing. Some of you, this is the first time I've ever been in your presence. First time you looked at me, you take three seconds, you evaluate me. But I do the same for you as well. That's human nature. We're always evaluating and looking. Is this person of equal social status? Is this person better dressed that I want to cozy up to that person to make sure that I uh, can use and benefit from such a social relationship? We're doing this all the time. And people are looking at our dress. They're looking at our grooming habits. They're looking at, uh, you know, even uh, things like uh, your, you know, the type of uh, purses or the types of uh, accoutrements that you have. They're always looking at those kind of things. We know that first impressions can be negative. Samuel, a prophet in the Bible, when he is now told to go anoint the next king, he comes to a family, father is Jesse, and he sees all of Jesse's sons before him. The first time he sees... The oldest, Eliab, what does he do? Oh, that's the next king. He was using first impressions and come away with, ah, that's going to be the next king of Israel. But Samuel was wrong. God had to prompt him that it was not going to be the eldest, Eliab, who was going to be the next king of Israel after Saul. It was going to be the ruddy runt David who was going to be anointed as the next king. So even prophets can be led astray by first impressions. But when we think about things in the text, the word of God, authors have great care in making sure that they portray the characters that we encounter in the text in such a way to create a good first impression. So that's really what we want to talk about. This is called characterization. Authors, when you think about it, have very limited amount of time to tell their story. Now, I'm 51 years of age. If you were to ask me, give us your life story, 
I could take 51 years to tell you my life story, including the times that I slept for eight hours a night. That would be rather boring. What would I have to do? I have to cull through all of the events of my life, and I have to pull together little pieces and snippets of what I've gone through and lived through and use that to tell you who I am. When we think about the Bible characters, you know, some of them live very long lives. And so we only have a limited amount of time and a little bit of, a limited amount of space to be able to give the reader what they're like. So it's like selective information. And that's what authors have to do. They have to select what pieces of information they're going to share to you as a reader. But here's now where I want us to explore. We don't often think about why did they choose those little pieces of information as compared to other pieces? Why do we only hear these little snippets about this person's background? The hypothesis here is what? Is that authors, by telling us not overtly, but covertly, we call this really indirect characterization. By looking at a character, by his physical appearance, or by his first actions, what he first does, and especially by the first words that we hear. Here's a, a thing to ponder, to consider. The narrator can tell the whole story in his or her own words. But in the Bible, we have something very basic called what? Quotation marks. What are quotation marks? Those are quotes that the characters within the story have said. So there's a dance going on between the narrator, who has got the microphone, as it were. we got men with the microphone. They have the power of the microphone. And they're the ones make a choice whether they're going to keep the microphone in their hand or they're going to pass it off to somebody and allow us to hear them in their own words. Same as with biblical authors. They can tell the story of Noah's flood all the way through without even giving Noah a chance to speak. And actually, that's what happens. We don't hear anything that Noah says. He lives a very long time. It's not until after he gets off the ark that we actually hear him speak. The narrator has held the microphone for 500 years and tells us about Noah, but doesn't allow us to hear him. And so those are the choices that an author makes that we as readers can exploit and look at to say, why did the author allow us to hear the character here as compared to the author keeping the microphone and saying what's happening in the story. So here's my hypothesis. It's really more than a hypothesis because this is how literature works. Is that when we encounter especially major characters in the Bible, we should be looking for at least three things, if not more. We should be identifying any physical description that the author chooses to give. Because remember, out of all the pieces of information, that author is selective to give us a little bit of a snapshot of that character. We learn about David being small and red, ruddy. Why does the author say that? As compared to, you know, he had, uh, he was five foot six. 
So there's different ways that the author can limit himself or herself in telling us the physical characteristics of a character. Another thing to look at is what does the author do to portray the character's first actions? What do we first see the character doing? And then also, what is the character saying? Now, many of you I know watch films. Filmmakers and authors are very much the same. If you're watching a film, this is something now you can do as kind of a literary film critic. You can now watch, begin to watch films and look for these kind of techniques that the directors and the filmmakers use. When you see a character on the film, what do we first see that character doing? Because oftentimes that's going to be what? Very reflective of who they really are. That's what we call indirect characterization. We don't have as many direct character statements with the biblical characters as we might think. Now, we have some of them. We have statements like, David was a man after God's own heart. That's a direct characterization. But we have plenty of things that we can look at David's life and say, indirectly, we can get a portrait of what David is like based on his actions, based on his words. And so that's the technique that authors use and filmmakers use all the time. So we're just now trying to isolate that and look at how is it that biblical characters are introduced to us and how we can use that information to help us make a proper first impression of who they are. And so the things you want to look at is, A, even the character's name. Especially in Genesis, we have two characters who have name changes. That tells us what? If your name changes, there's a transformation that happens. So even having a name change lets us know indirectly that that character is going to be transformed before our very eyes. But then the other things to look at, the speech acts. Look for quotation marks. When I was uh, taught Bible study methods, nobody ever said, look for quotation marks. And ask the question, why did the author allow us to hear the individual, the character, in his or her own words? That's an important uh, question to ponder. Also, the physical description, as we talked about. And then, what are the first actions? So, let's do some experimentation. Here's a little snippet from Exodus chapter 2. So, we're going to experiment. We're going to go outside of Genesis first to prove it. And then we will look at how it works in Genesis, with Genesis 1 and 2. Here's Moses. Actually, before it, there is one little physical descriptor that is given. The only physical descriptor we have of Moses when he is born is that he is a good child. That's the only physical description we have, that Moses is a good child. We'll come back to that. But here is the text of Moses' account in Exodus chapter 2. And here's what's interesting. Who's the author of Exodus? Moses. Here he is telling an autobiographical background of his own life. So guess what? He can choose whatever he wants. If he wants to portray himself in a very positive light, he has the microphone in two ways. So here, Moses is introducing himself to us, as it were. Of course, under divine inspiration. But look at the details that are here, and let's see if we can see some indirect characterization. 
What I have here in yellow is his first actions. In green are his first words. And we've already isolated his physical descriptor is that he is a good child. Not very helpful, but at least we have that one statement. So I want you to look at uh, those uh, three or four verses. Look at his first actions in yellow and begin then to analyze what does that tell us about Moses? If these are the first activities that we see Moses doing, how does that help us to see Moses in a certain way? What does that tell us about Moses? And then look at his first speech act, the first time we actually hear Moses' own words, and what does that do to indirectly give us a little glimpse as to what Moses is like, what makes him tick. So take a look, and uh, we'll have the guys with the roving microphones and see if you can uh, notice some, make some observations about what these first actions of Moses and his first words let us see about Moses' character. Now, before we get there, earlier I mentioned that the text mentions that he is a good child. Now, why would that be something that would be shared about a child? Aren't all children good? My wife's got pictures of my grandchildren, my grandchild. She's a good child. Isn't every grandchild good? So why is that statement being said about Moses? Well, think about the context. Remember the scene. Pharaoh has given an edict for what? Every boy is to be tossed into the Nile, to be drowned. Moses is born. It's another interesting story. We don't get to hear Moses' parents' names until later on in the story. We know them to be Jochebed, is his mother's name. And so she gives birth to Moses. And of course, any parent in that situation would have a huge dilemma, right? What are you going to do? You're going to obey the edict of Pharaoh to toss your own son into the Nile River? Or are you going to try to protect? Well, she does the protection route. She hid him, right? But then he grew, and it would be next to impossible to keep him hidden very much longer. But within that context, it says that Moses is a good child. Now, we often say this expression, children are to be seen, not heard. Why is Moses such a good child? In that situation, most babies do what? What do they do? They cry like crazy. Why is it that Moses' mother could keep him hidden for a relatively long period of time? It's probably because he was a very docile quiet, good child. He wasn't fussy. So mom could keep him hidden until uh, his, the, where he grew too big to where she couldn't hide him anymore. So that's a little snippet that he uh, is uh, good in that sense. So that physical descriptor may give us insight as to why he was able to be preserved his life for a while. But now let's look at his first actions. Now you've had a chance to look at it. If you were to tease out what we first see Moses doing, remember, Moses could say anything. He could have said, well, when I was growing up, I went to school for six hours a day in Pharaoh's school. Uh, he could have talked about where he lived. 
There's lots of pieces of information that Moses could have shared. But he fast forward to this incident, and this is the first glimpse we have of Moses doing anything. But what does that do to help us as readers? So, what do you think that these first actions portray Moses as? What do you see here going on? Do I have any volunteers? Come on now. All right. What do you see Moses doing here? He was curious. Okay. He has a, a level of curiosity. We see that curiosity factor there. We're going to see that later on when he sees a burning bush. Uh, he's curious why the bush is on fire but doesn't burn. So we see a little bit of that curiosity here. What else do we see here depicted in his first actions? Yes. Ignorant of the, of, has he been ignorant of the fact that, his, that the, the Jewish people were his people? Um, I don't think so. I think he knew of his origin. I think he knew he was different, that he was you know, basically adopted, as it were. Or that he was curious. Right, yeah, so we see that curiosity labor. Uh, so he goes out to where his own people were, and he watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, all right? One of his own people. So again, he's identifying with his own race. But glancing this way and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Remember, this is the first th thing we see Moses doing. He goes out one day. And he's looking out over the mass of his people. And what does he see? They're being mistreated. So when he sees mistreatment, what does he want to do? He wants to jump in. And what does he do? He jumps in. How does he jump in? <laughs> Feet first, mouth first, fist, fist first. He is a man of action. So we can, we'll, we'll tease that out a little bit more. What about his first words? It says, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? What well is Moses tapping into to, that these words come out? What's driving this question? Kind of already teased it a little bit. Why does he ask this particular question? Right. 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 So why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? We might call this justice-oriented, right? Some of you have children, remember when you were raising children, that were very justice-oriented. Susie got that piece of the pie. My pie is a little slice is a little smaller. I want the same size piece as my sibling, right? You've had children like that, justice oriented. Moses is seen as justice oriented. He does not like to see what? Any abuse. So let's tease this out then. The first action is he looked out on his people's burdens. And then he killed a cruel Egyptian slave master. Here's the portrait. We see a duality here. He is a man of great, great compassion. He sees injustice and he is burdened by it. 
but he just doesn't do nothing. He just doesn't have a swell of emotion that just sits there. He jumps in. And within that jumping in, he's not thinking straight, is he? Because what he does is he murders an Egyptian. And so really what's driving that, he sees injustice and he gets angry. And in that anger, he kills the one who was abusing a fellow Hebrew. And so we see this combination of compassion and justice and anger. But then the first words, why do you strike your companion? He is justice oriented. Now think about it. Why would Moses want to share these first actions and these first words? How does that help us the rest of the way with our first impression of Moses? Is Moses very compassionate? I would say very much so. Remember, he even says, kill me, not punish the people. He was willing to lay down his own life to take the punishment for the sins of his people. He is a very compassionate individual. Is he also got an anger issue? What happens when he's leading the people in the wilderness? He is told to speak to the rock. And what does he do? You rebels! And he strikes the rock twice. And that is what prevents him from going into the promised land. That anger, which surfaced early on, is something that is something that he's going to struggle with, as it were, later on in his life. So the portraits of Moses being compassionate portrayed early on, portrayed through his whole life, and the anger is also there. So this is what's interesting. With biblical characters, human characters, we often get this duality. We see a good trait, but we often see what we call their Achilles heel. What is it that trips them up? With David, the first actions we see that he's a musician and he's a warrior. David is a psalmist associated with many of the psalms. So he is a songwriter, but he also was a warrior and a shepherd. He's a leader. Well, what are the first words that come out of David's mouth? We are introduced to David in 1 Samuel 16, but he doesn't speak until chapter 17. The first words out of David's mouth are very interesting. He does say, how is it that this man could defile the armies of the living God? Talking about Goliath. So we see that expression of what we know of David to be what? A man after God's heart. So he sees this giant, Goliath, taunting the God of Israel, and he says, that bothers me. I am a man after God's own heart. But what is it that David says before he makes that statement? All around the camp, news is making its way around that King Saul is going to reward the man who goes and tries to challenge Goliath. He's going to give him his daughter in marriage and make him tax-free. I mean, that's a good incentive. So David's first words that we hear is, what shall be given the man who does this? We see a man who has some selfish desire. Does David have selfish desire portrayed through his life? He takes a census. He wants to know how many men he has. He wants Bathsheba, who he sees one night as he's out on the roof of the temple complex or the uh, the palace complex. 
So that duality of David is there as well. We see the good trait. He is a man after God's own heart, but he also has this Achilles heel that self-serving. So we see the same with Moses. So these are the things we there. So the characterization that Moses has indirectly is that he is a justice-oriented, compassionate individual who looks out for underdogs. And guess what? The next account, he does the same thing. When he is found out, he flees and he goes to Midian. What happens when he gets to Midian? There are some girls who are trying to take care of some sheep and they're at the well. And what's happening? Local shepherd men are not allowing Zipporah's uh, or the, uh, the Zipporah and her sisters, you know, Jethro's daughters, to be able to have access to water rights. So what does Moses do? He sees injustice. What does he do again? Jumps in and helps out the girls to make sure that their flocks are watered. And then when the daughters go home, you know the rest of the story. Why are you home so quickly? Well, we had somebody rescue us. Oh, why didn't you bring them home? See, Jethro was looking. He had all these daughters. He was looking for a son-in-law as well. And that first impression made a deep impression upon him. Moses is justice-oriented. He sees underdogs, and he goes all in to take care of them. Whether it's a fellow, a Hebrew being abused by an Egyptian slave master, or it's women being abused by local thugs, as it were, who preventing them access to the water well. So that characterization of Moses carries itself all the way through. And as we said, it also, we see the portrait of anger. And so this is the perfect portrait snapshot if i were to show you a picture of of moses and to briefly describe him i would say he's compassionate he's got a bit of an anger issue and he is what uh, he is a, uh, a a perfect man because he's justice oriented to do what what is moses most associated with the law what better to give the law than somebody who is justice-oriented. Moses is the perfect human that God selected to be the one, to be the mediator, to give the law. We see Moses as this justice-oriented individual, and God likes underdogs just like Moses. So Moses is the candidate that God uses to give the body of laws to his nation. So you see how this works? So now let's take a look at what's going on uh, with Genesis 1 and 2. I'm going to tread lightly here, but I think you see what I'm going to do. If this works with human characters, what do we walk away with when we look at God? God is a character within his own book. So how do we form a first impression of God? Well, we have to look at what? We, don't, we know he doesn't have any physical descriptors, but we can look at what? His first words and his first actions. So let's do our characterization technique on God. Here is what we see happening in Genesis 1. Now, I encourage you to bring your Bibles. There's some Bibles here on the table. Uh, for today, I'm going to portray a lot of this uh, for you. But I want you to bring your Bibles so you can see this on your own. But in Genesis, here is the first times we see God doing something. 
What is it that he does? God said, God saw, God separated, God called, God called. Now I'm going to summarize what's happening here. So these are the first actions that we encounter that God does in the opening chapter of the Bible. So how can we then use this information to help us see how God wants himself to be portrayed? How he wants us to see him? Well, here I counted up for you all of the verbs that are used where God is subject. God said ten times. God saw seven times. God created seven times. God made or called five times. He made three times. He blessed three times. He gave twice. Other uh, verbs associated, separated, he finished, he rested, he made holy. So we're seeing the first activity of God. Now, with the advantage of Bible software, I'm able to do some analysis. So noticing that these are the first verbs associated with God in Genesis 1, I asked the Bible software to give me, what are the most frequently used verbs of God in all of the Old Testament? So now where God is the subject, what do we have in the text that God does all the way through from Genesis to Malachi? Well, I think you'll be surprised. The number one verb associated with divine activity is God said. The number one verb. The number two verb is God saw. The number three verb is God gave. The number four verb is God made. The number five verb is God called. You see what's happening here? Is that Moses, in portraying God's actions, is making sure that we get a glimpse of what God does all the time. So the selection of these verbs, these actions of God, are characteristic all the way through the rest of the Old Testament. The number one activity that God does is he speaks. He's a revelatory God. And he also is a what? A seeing God. And we're going to notice that in future lessons when we see what God sees. But then God gives. He's a giving God. He makes. He calls. These are things that we see. Other things, the repetition of the word created. He seven times pronounces good. I call that a theology of celebration. All of this shows that God is a God of order. He speaks. He organizes. He calls. He gives. All these things are there. And we can see some of this order in how the days are put forth. Days 1 to 3 are one grouping, and days 4 to 6 are another grouping. Before the days happen, the text says that the world, the earth, was unformed and unfilled. Now, we're not getting into the science of that. I'm just getting into the literary structure that's happening here. The first three days show us the stage. These are the days of forming. So what do we form? We form light, day one. We form the firmament, day two. We form land, sea, and plants. But they are what? They're just the habitats. We're forming the first three days, but what are we doing in days four through six? We're filling. So notice now we have the correlation between day one and day four. What are the light bearers? We have sun, moon, and stars. What are the things that live in the firmament? Well, the sea life and the birds. What lives on the land and the sea? Well, especially the land, land life and man, so all the animals. 
So we have days of forming, and then we have days of filling. So it shows us, once again, the portrait is we have a very orderly God. What's intriguing, too, in terms of characterization, if you look at Genesis 1, the word God is repeated 35 times. Authors have choices. They can say God, or once we know that he is a subject, what do authors have to use? They could use what we call pronouns. There is an avoidance of pronouns in Genesis 1. God did, God did, God said, God called, God made, God created, God separated, on and on and on. Every time, it's like we keep on using the word God. I could say, Karen organized this series. Karen organized that the room would be set up. Karen made sure that the tour was set up properly. You can register. Karen, you see what I'm doing? I'm using Karen all the time. It's unnecessary. But if I want to stress Karen, that's what I would do. And that's what happens in Genesis 1. God is stressed 35 times. He's mentioned 35 times by name. So we have that characterization. Poetically, we'll talk about this in another lesson, how poetry is a literary device within Genesis. We have a little poetic section of Genesis 1, and that is we are made in God's image. The whole structure of Genesis 1 focuses on Sabbath. Everything is preparatory to get to the seventh day, the day of rest. So these are the two peaks. But in terms of characterization, these are things that are what's on God's heart. He is a God of order. He wants to uh, make sure that man is seen as the pinnacle of his creation. And then also everything works towards rest. That's our final goal. But if we now characterize God from Genesis 1, we have what? He is to be portrayed like a king. We don't use the word king. But everything that we see God doing in Genesis 1 portrays him as a king, right? He makes provisions. He establishes order. He sets up vice regents. These will be my representatives. They, bear, they are stamped in my image. They will represent me on earth. His kingdom is magnificent. It's ordered. It's balanced. Days 1 to 3 with days 4 to 6. It's full of life and light. He pronounces blessings. He's a benevolent dictator. He unveils his kingdom in successive days, building the two peaks, creation of man in his image and the Sabbath. Everything is structured. Everything is ordered. Everything is designed. That's the portrait we have of God. That's our first glimpse of God. God is a God of order. He also is a lawgiver. He makes sure that there's boundaries, that things are done according to their kind that there's separation between light and darkness. So he is a boundary maker, and he powerfully speaks. Of course, that's the number one word, the verb. So the summary then of God in chapter 1 is he's transcendent. He is sovereign. He's a God of order, extremely powerful. That's the image, the snapshot that we have of God. Well, now it's going about to change. Chapter 2 we have a different name. Now, critics of the Bible have said, well, we have two different creation accounts. And in some aspect, we could say there is an element of truth to that. In the sense that if we look at the character, who God is, we have God or Elohim in chapter 1, but we have a different title given in chapter 2. 
It is the Lord God. So if you analyze and look at Genesis 2, you see that we have a new name given or different title given for the deity figure in chapter 2. So just like we looked at chapter 1 in terms of what God did, what does this Lord God do? He makes, he forms, he takes, he brings, he breathes, he plants, he put. These are the main verbs associated with divine activity in the chapter 2 telling of what happened at creation. So now, just like we looked at the verbs associated with God in chapter 1, now we look at the verbs associated in chapter 2, and what kind of snapshot or portrait do we have of the Lord God from these verbs? We'll take a look at them. He's making, he's forming, he's taking, he's bringing, he's breathing, he's planting. What kind of image of God do we have from these verbs? Creation, very personal. He is very directly active. So now, what happens in chapter 2 is God creates man, then he creates plants, he plants a garden with full of trees, then he places a river, puts Adam in the garden, he gives Adam a command, he forms beasts and birds, and then finally woman. Everything is focused on what will make the environment better for man. Rather than being created last and then given dominion over the animals, man is portrayed as being created early on and then given an environment to live. God then creates for him a kind of community that is dominated by relationships. What is man's relationship to the animal world? What's his relationship to the wife, to Eve? What's his relationship to God? All these things are dominated by relationships. So God creates man, then a place for him to live, food for him to eat, sights for him to look at, animals as companions, and finally, woman as special companion. That's the portrayal of what we see God doing, the Lord God doing in chapter 2. So instead of parallelism and incremental progression, the chapter 2 focus is what we call centrifugal. Everything emanates from man and how everything fits and relates to man. What does man need? He needs a home. Okay, I'll create a garden. What does he need? He needs companions. Okay, animals are now there. What does he need? He needs a special companion. Oh, I'll make Eve, his wife. Everything is now focused on what does man need? We don't have that same focus in chapter 1 of Genesis. So this tells us that this is a main interest that God has, is what is man's needs. So the name for the divine being in chapter 2 is Lord God. Now, let's tease out these verbs once again. He formed, he breathed, he planted, he took, he put. These verbs imply physical working with hands. Now, does God have hands? Not physically, but anthropomorphically, we see him portrayed like we see ourselves. What do we do? We can plant, we can breathe, we can bring, we can do all these things. And these are the verbs that we see associated with God. So what we have here is a portrait of God as a very personal being, very much concerned about others. And so we picture then the metaphors a little differently. We see him as a potter. We see him as a gardener. We see him as a father giving lands to his sons. Those are the images we have. Remember what the image was of chapter 1? God is king, lord, sovereign. What's the image we have of God in chapter 2? He's a loving father. 
He's a potter. He's a gardener. Much more intimate, much more personal. So now, the impression that we get of God in chapter 2 is we have a very human kind of divine being. He's not human, but you know what I mean. He is benevolent to an extreme degree. So now, what do we learn about God? Chapter 1, God speaks to man, but it's almost like he's standing above man. And he's shouting orders to him from above. But in chapter 2, it's like he has what? His arm around man, leading him, bringing him, placing him in certain locations, and bringing his special companion to him. There is a very gracious, intimate relationship between God and man. So now, I know this is a very, very weak analogy, and I apologize in advance. But in chapter 1, we might have God seen as a law-abiding Republican. Orderly, there's clear distinction between the divisions of government, and there's clearly defined roles. In chapter 2, he is seen as a liberal Democrat. He is philanthropic. He plants a garden, gives him trees for food, provides him with water and precious minerals, and finds him a helper. So is God Republican or Democrat? The portrayal is he's a little bit of both. He is both orderly and sovereign and divine and powerful. But he also is very intimate and loving and personal and cares for people. That's the first impression we get literarily, character-wise, of who God is. Now, I think it's important that the order is first. What's the first glimpse we get of God? He is king. He is Lord. He's sovereign. We don't see him first as an elderly grandfather sitting on a rocking chair just dispensing gifts. We see him first as a sovereign Lord. But we should not walk away with only that impression of who God is. We also need to very quickly balance that with the God that is very personal and very intimate. So, if man is to exercise dominion, like we see God giving to us in chapter 1, we are to then operate like God does, with order, with structure. But we are also to imitate the Lord God which means we are to be philanthropic and generous and loving and personal and caring for others. And we must care about man's relationships and environment. So we are to be both. So if we review then, we see in chapter 1 the transcendence of God through his actions. In chapter 2, we call the imminence of God. We see his presence. Sovereignty is stressed in chapter 1. Intimacy is stressed in chapter 2. The names are different. It's Elohim in chapter 1. It's Lord God in chapter 2. So we're clearly knowing that we're identifying a character and using different terms. We have male and female, chapter 1. What do we have in chapter 2? Their names. See, again, the, the change to personal. Adam and Eve, we know them by name, not just male and female, by gender. God creates and speaks, chapter 1. He forms, he breathes, he plants, chapter 2. So these are things that are are focused on in these chapters. Let's wrap things up. The Gospels give us a fourfold picture of Jesus. Why do we have four Gospels? Why don't we just have one that tells us the life of Christ? Well, Jesus is so important that it takes four Gospel writers to give us snapshots of who Jesus is. 
And if we study the Gospels, we can take a look at Jesus from four different vantage points, right? Matthew portrays him as king. Mark as the servant. Luke as the son of man. John as the son of God. And we can have great Bible studies analyzing how each of the Gospel writers gives us a snapshot from a certain angle of who Jesus is. Is Jesus the son of God? Yes. Is Jesus the son of man? Yes. Is he a servant? Yes. Is he a king? Yes. He's all of those and more. But it takes four gospel writers to tell us that. Well, we don't have four, uh, four books telling us about God at the beginning of the Bible. We only have one, but we have two chapters. And these two chapters basically, in essence, do what the four gospels do for Jesus. They give us the most important portrait of who God is. We see him, first of all, as transcendent, and then we see him as personal. And that's the order of how we are to see God. So our first impressions, then, are that God is both sovereign and gracious, probably two of the most distinguishing characteristics about God. If we were to ask people, the man on the street, woman on the street, what are the two main qualities of God, I think we'd say God is sovereign and God is loving. Right? And that's how Genesis portrays him. God is sovereign, but he's also loving. And that's the way that the character of God is introduced to us in the Bible. So we look at his first speech, let there be light. That's a revelatory God. He wants to reveal himself. And then his first actions, he creates, he speaks, he orders. Chapter 2, he forms, he plants, he places. And here's the walkaway point about this first character that we are introduced to with God. He is sovereign and powerful, but boy, does he love us. He is concerned about us. And that's the portrait we have of God. So now, some homework for you. Next week, when I start, we're going to talk about Abraham, Abram. I want you to look at his first actions. I want you to look at his first words. And I want you to look at any physical descriptors that the author of Genesis, Moses, gives us about Abraham. And we'll talk about this technique. Because this is a technique that I want you, a skill building, that I want you to walk away with that you can use now for other characters of the Bible, like David, like Joshua, like Daniel. And you can now use this technique to help you to enhance your own understanding of God's Word. Father, thank you that you even use these techniques that are used by authors to characterize people within these words. And how you characterize Moses as justice and loving and compassionate, but also somebody that struggles with anger. But he is the one that you use to give us the law. And as we see the portrait of yourself in the first opening chapters of the Bible, we see you as sovereign, as Lord, but we also see you as loving and caring and personal. So, Father, help us to have this right first impression of you and to learn how to read these texts with better clarity and insight for ourselves. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Next week we'll talk more about other techniques. But, uh, yes. Well, that's the whole thing. Genesis 1 and 2, I hate to break it to you, are not written to combat evolution. They're written to introduce to us God. And here's what I I say. I think actually we are distracted by those scientific arguments to get at what the author really wants us to see, which is God. We are introduced 
as we open God's word to who God is, and we're concerned about how it happened rather than who did it. The author of Genesis is, is clearly focusing on who did this. And so we, if we are to pay homage to what God has given to us, we need to understand that it's the first opening chapters are mainly about who God is. All right, thank you. Karen. Jen, thank you.